The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. And we're back. We may have had a three-week summer hiatus, but the news didn't stop. So although I might be struggling to remember my co-host's names, I am ready to talk about everything that's been happening in the industry in recent weeks. Up first, we're going to focus on the positive activity around offshore wind here in the U.S. Then we're going to discuss Bill McKibben's latest piece on World War III-like mobilization for cleantech, which is sparking debate. And finally, we'll look back at the last 10 years of the regional carbon trading market in the northeastern U.S. called Reggie. Back from her isolated cabin in the Adirondacks is Catherine Hamilton. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Well-rested, I assume. Yes, it's great to be back, although isolated is relative considering how many people are in my family. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe not as relaxed as I assumed. No, it was awesome. It was so great. Great. Well, good to hear your voice again. And with us from New York City, you heard his laugh. It's Jigger Shaw. Jigger, did you get any rest in these last three weeks or just shift your attention to something else? Well, I had a family reunion in the Poconos with 47 family members. So I think my family members ended up being bigger than yours, Catherine. Yeah, yes, they did. That would not be relaxing, <laughs> although maybe very fun. Well, it was great. I mean, like the little guy, he uh, he had a ball, and um, so I had a lot of free babysitting. Okay, well, let's shift our attention to offshore wind. It looks like we're actually seeing the dawn of a real industry here. America's first offshore wind project, the humble 30-megawatt Block Island wind farm off the coast of Rhode Island, is almost complete and the developer Deepwater Wind is already eyeing much bigger projects off the Atlantic coast. Meanwhile, following the federal government's attempts to make offshore leasing easier, a number of East Coast states are adopting policies to encourage new projects. Massachusetts passed a bill that would require utilities to procure 1,600 megawatts of offshore wind in the next decade. New York State also put its 50% renewable energy target into law, which will also rely heavily on offshore wind. There are auctions approaching for that state already. These developments have onlookers agog about offshore wind. Is America set to follow Europe, which has built many thousands of megawatts of projects? Catherine, do you see Block Island Wind, which is this uh, $300 million project, 30 megawatts, as a symbol or a real kickstart to an industry here in America? Well, so I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, Block Island was sort of the perfect place to do this project because it had a has a pretty fragile, high-cost, antiquated, really dirty diesel system in place. So this was a really great place to do it. But one of the reasons it was also um, so significant is that, you know, the the state and federal work on mapping of ocean resources um, really maximize the siting, to look at maximizing siting and minimizing impact on fishing and aquatics and such. I mean, this is what the, the governor's office folks are telling me is that, you know, they did their homework. So they were able to put a project in, you know, based on a lot of these mapping 
um, technologies. And, and I think that that is how the rest of the projects are going to have to move forward, too. They have to do that homework before they can really start implementing. So there's this mapping element that I want to draw out from Jigger because he wrote a piece for us in 2015 about what he thinks the government's getting wrong in offshore wind investments. Um, but before we do that, I, I want to talk more about what went right here because we've dealt with this decade-long battle over Cape Wind off the coast of Nantucket Sound. And one wonders, why was the Deepwater Wind project more successful when Cape Wind struggled for so long? And there are some unique factors here. One was its size. It was much more manageable. And you had an island. This is what you are referring to, Catherine. It's an island that's isolated from, from the mainland. So it's really expensive to generate electricity. They have these diesel generators. They, they, they needed a cable to link to the mainland. So it was going to cost tens of millions of dollars on its own to link this island, Block Island. And deep water wind could come in and finagle getting the connection and building a clean energy resource. And that brought a lot of people on board. And uh, it also enabled them to bring high-speed internet and it connected the island in, an, in a unique way that wasn't the case for, for Cape Wind. So that was a, a really interesting element that perhaps people should look at for future projects. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's always great in hindsight to sort of look at these deals. But, you know, the reality of the situation was that when this project was awarded, um, the owner of the Block Island utility had put the utility up for sale. Um, but he basically just didn't like to do this in the right terms. This was a deal that was brokered between the governor of Rhode Island at the time and the owner of the Block Island utility as a way of sort of hiding the fact of the expense of connecting the Block Island, you know, grid to the mainland. And well, and that was a potential drawback early on because people saw it as this like backroom political deal. It, and it was a backroom political deal. No. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it transferred a tremendous amount of wealth to this family that owned the Block Island utility. And, you know, like in in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it matters. It's 30 megawatts and it's great. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing that this project has been completed. But I do think that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of backroom, back and forth stuff that happened to get this deal done. So the outcome of the deal looks pretty good on paper. I'm going to show my ignorance and say that I don't know a lot about the that political controversy, just that I knew it had taken place. So do you think it, it taints this wind farm? I mean, was it was it a really big deal? Can you just kind of fill in no, the gaps a little bit more for me? Sure. I mean, so in 2010, you know, basically at the time it was Governor Don, you know, Carcieri, the champion, the project. Um, and But there were critics, right, from the Democratic Attorney General, Patrick Lynch, to Tea Party activists who all sort of accused this project of being a boondoggle. There were all these activists that sort of protested at the Statehouse Rotunda. And, you know, basically the ratepayers were being asked to, at the time to pay an above market price um, of for of in the amount of $440 million for deep waters energy over the next two decades, which was way more expensive than just building the transmission line. Well, I think it's significant, though, that in Europe, which, you know, 91% of offshore wind is in northern Europe, um, 
you know, they, they were paying a premium. They were paying three to four times wholesale pricing for offshore, and now they're competitive. And I think it's important for us to get this in, in the water and um, show that it can be done, show that if you do your due diligence um, on mapping and making sure that you cover your bases and in siting issues. Now, in this particular instance, they can see the turbines. Most of these projects, you won't be able to see the turbines at all from the land. Um but I, I think it is significant in that way, and they will be able to prove that it works and start doing it in New York and Massachusetts. Oh, I don't disagree at all. I mean, look, I'm a huge supporter of this project. Um, I just think that it's important to see it from the other side of the story, which is that this is a PPA at 24 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, and this could have been a place where the, gov- the federal government actually kicked in the money to pay for the above market costs, you know, and, in a way that was probably much more manageable than all the money they lost at the Kemper coal plant. Well, it just goes to show you that this is kind of a unique situation because that price, while politically controversial, is more palatable because this is an isolated uh, island that was generating really expensive electricity from diesel. So that kind of speaks to the limitations of offshore wind in this country in that we, you know, we're still going to be paying higher prices, and we don't have a real industry yet in this country compared to Europe. Um, Speaking of Europe, Catherine, in the first quarter of this year alone, 511 megawatts of offshore wind were installed, bringing the total to 11,538 megawatts. Um, So Europe has a lot of experience here, and you're starting to see pretty competitive prices for some of the newer projects, and we're just not there yet in the U.S., yeah, I mean, I think cost continues to be a problem for everyone, and it will certainly in the U.S., even though it will help um, states in the nor- Northeast meet increasing uh, RPS targets. But one of the um, things that is happening in Europe and Scotland and in the North Sea as well are, you know, Statoil um, is doing a one megawatt hour um, lithium ion battery with their high wind pilot project. Um, which is actually a floating project. And then SAV has sent a bunch of batteries to the North Sea because if you can couple batteries um, to these wind projects, you can get increased revenues with through more services, through arbitrage, et cetera. That's right. And Deepwater Wind has been talking about that, I believe. No, it makes complete sense. I mean, the one other thing I think we should be explicit about is this is an explicit policy of the U.S. government to be a fast follower. I mean, I remember when Kelly Speaks Backman was... Um, who was a former employee of Sun Edison and then was on the Public Service Commission of Maryland, we had this conversation explicitly, and she's like, well, should we support offshore wind? And I was like, hell no. You should do a big old study off of Maryland, make it take five years, and push it off. Because if the Europeans are dumb enough to spend tens of billions of dollars, let them. Like, we are always fast followers in the United States. We didn't pay for most of the cost of reducing onshore solar or onshore wind, you know, we, we definitely aren't going to pay for most of the costs of the technology, you know, for offshore wind. I mean, that's mostly Europe that's paying for it. No, let's be clear. Like, the Europeans weren't dumb for kickstarting an industry. We should be thanking them for... Oh, I am thanking them. But, like, I mean, we do the same thing in healthcare, right? The American government loves overpaying for healthcare, um, And then we export all of those innovations overseas. We We have an explicit policy in this country not to you know, to bring these new technologies to market and not to pay for the, you know, the scaling costs. We leave, leave it to Japan or, or Europe. So many listeners might have already heard our conversation with Ryan Weiser of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and I was chatting with him about offshore wind. 
And he said that the offshore wind industry could be summed up in three words, uh, size, standardization, and risk, really risk reduction. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the offshore wind projects are much more expensive because of the logistics of installation. So you need to scale uh, the, the, the rotors and the blades and the towers, and you need to make everything a lot bigger. The foundations are really costly, of course, so you just need to increase nameplate capacity to be able to make these projects work. Um, that's already happening in Europe, and I think it needs to happen in the U.S. I know Deepwater Wind's talking about this uh, gigawatt project off of the coast of Montauk. We'll see how that progresses. Then he said that, that standardization is key. Each project is still very unique. And even though Europe has 11,000 megawatts installed, each one of those projects is developed in a very unique way. And so in order for costs to continue to come down, in order for the U.S. to lead, we need to see an industry built so that standards are created. And we're just not even at that point yet. Well, and, and finally, DOE and missed finally a... in risk reduction, you know, the cost of financing is just really high at this point because there's really no track record here in the U.S. So those are things that need to happen to make sure that we build off of what's happening on Block Island, off the coast of Block Island. Yeah, and I think DOE missed a big opportunity to do that, right? I mean, and so when they spent millions of dollars supporting offshore wind, um, they sort of like, you know, invested on new foundation designs and new ones of, you know, new R&D. But, you know, what they should have done was first to then conduct geophysical studies of wind areas like Maryland did off their coast, um, which, you know, really requires digging holes and doing all that subsurface work 100 feet below the, the floor of the ocean to figure out what's there and where you can put foundations. Second is put up at least one wind turbine you know, height meteorological tower in each lease area so you can start to measure the wind speeds at 300 meters, which they haven't done, right? I mean, and and so a lot of that work is what they should have funded, and instead they sort of left that to the states. Have the states generally done an okay job, or has it been pretty mixed? Well, you know, it's mixed, right? Because ultimately, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's well, states. Well, like, let's take a state like <laughs> Massachusetts. I mean, I, I honestly don't know the work that they've done in evaluating the resource and mass, but Charlie Baker... I mean, uh, uh, Charlie Baker, Republican governor here in Mass, signed a bill that mandates 1,600 megawatts over the next 10 years of offshore wind in spite of the Cape Wind track record. Um, looks like Cape Wind won't be a part of that 1,600 megawatts. But, look, you know, isn't the state of Massachusetts ready? They, do, they, do they know what the resource is? That's the question I have. Well, they're getting ready. Maryland, I think, did the best job early on. I think Virginia tried to copy that work about four years ago. Um, you know, New York is getting there. I think, you know, the work that D.E. Shaw has done in this space, I think, has been really good. And, you know, New York really has awarded 90 megawatts of additional offshore wind capacity, you know, to support Long Island. It's not the full thousand, but it's about 90 megawatts worth, which is great. The governor didn't announce it widely because of a lot of PR issues um, on Long Island about it. Folks are complaining they're going to be able to see it, even though it's really far offshore. Well, and I think we should watch the Gulf, too, to see what the offshore oil industry does with this because uh, it looks like Louisiana may be doing some wind too. Yeah, there's this company in Louisiana that won the contract to construct these foundations for the Block Island wind turbines. And, you know, I know that other companies, according to the reporting that I've read, other companies in the Gulf Coast are that are building these oil structures for offshore drilling are looking into wind power and they see that the, the northeastern market as a first mover 
being a potentially great new market. So I think that's a good success story domestically. If we get a couple more projects in the ground and you see these these companies transition and create new jobs off of building these platforms in a new region. Yeah, and hopefully Block Island will help de-risk it. So that third factor that you mentioned um, will be on our way. Okay, let's take a quick break here in the middle of the show to recognize Solar Edge, our sponsor. Solar Edge is a leading inverter and optimizer company, and they are talking a lot about the smart home. Because solar PV systems are not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They're not dumb. They now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smarter. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It is an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now also batteries and home load management devices. What is the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems and bringing them all together? It is the inverter. On the horizon is a future where the smart Solar Edge inverter controls the smart home, connected to the grid and connected to the cloud. It controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances in real time. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy and Solar Edge's products, visit SolarEdge.com. Um, let's move to our second topic: the mobilization of clean tech through a world war framing. We are really comfortable with the war metaphor here in the U.S. The war on drugs, the war on poverty the war on science, the war on coal. We've got wars raging all around this country. Do we also need to declare a war on greenhouse gases? Yes, that term has already been used, but I mean in the literal sense. What would declaring war on greenhouse gases actually look like? In a recent piece in the New Republic, climate activist and thinker Bill McKibben lays out his argument for why world war-like mobilization to combat climate change is the best way to deal with the problem. I will read a brief excerpt from the piece. By most ways we measure wars, climate change is the real deal. Carbon and methane are seizing physical territory, sowing havoc and panic, racking up casualties and even destabilizing governments. And if we lose, we will be as decimated and helpless as the losers in every conflict, except that this time there will be no winners and no end to the planet-wide occupation that follows. The question is not, are we in a world war? The question is, will we fight back? And if we do, can we actually defeat an enemy as powerful and inexorable as the laws of physics? Energy Twitter went completely nuts after this piece was published. A lot of debate. Anything McKibben writes usually sparks major debate. This one's worth talking about, though. If we're going to stabilize temperatures in the way that governments said they would last year in Paris, it is going to take this unprecedented industrial shift. And the closest shift we can look to is during World War II, when, when the U.S. government transformed America's economy very quickly into a, world, into a wartime economy. So can we do the same thing with clean tech? We're going to kind of walk through McKibben's arguments. And Jigger, I'll turn to you. What does war-like mobilization, like McKibben lays out, how does that square with your vision of clean tech being the greatest wealth creation opportunity in history. Are those two things opposed or are you kind of saying the same thing? Well, Bill and I are sort of yin and yang for each other. I think Bill is, you know, first of all, I would, the piece I thought was really well written. I mean, Bill yeah, is he's just, just a great, a great writer. writer. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good. And um, I do think that he cherry picked facts. 
you know, which sort of helped. But I do want to make sure that, like, you know, we talk about this in greater detail, which is it is true that the U.S. government basically um, helped convince the private sector to uh, to retool most of our industrial capacity in this country to make wartime implements, right? And a lot of that work occurred, you know, before Pearl Harbor. I mean, the thing that I think people don't realize is that FDR was preparing to go to World War II before Pearl Harbor. He just didn't have the votes. And so it wasn't until World War II occurred that he was able to expose all the work he had already done. Um, and a lot of that work was you know, was the U.S. government sort of eminent domaining people's factories, right? I mean, that's the other part he doesn't talk about here, which is like, I mean, he really, like, I mean, the U.S. government actually took over people's factories and said, you will make this now. It wasn't a partnership with the private sector. It was like, you are actually going to do this. Um, But I do think that when you think about how much industrial capacity we have in this country and, and we have around the world, we really do have the ability to make you know, two, three, four times as much clean climate change solutions than we are now, depending on the solution, and to deploy them at that scale, um, which I do think is fast enough to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, which is Bill's point, and that it does make it the largest wealth creation opportunity on this planet. Yeah, the thing about World War II is that it was really a huge collective effort. And so there were all these sacrifices, um, rationing, price controls, like you said, like durable goods were curtailed. There were, you know, the whole in, industrial retooling complex. Um, and there were all these sacrifices that people made in addition to a big propaganda war, right? So there, there was a huge propaganda effort on this. I don't know if people in this country now are like in sacrifice mode. Everybody's trying to grow the economy, not sacrifice. And I think, um, you know, this has to be something that everybody collectively takes on. So while our president has tried to pull every government function into doing something about climate change. So you have to have every single agency in the federal government, but you also have to have Congress on board. Our Congress has not been on board. A lot of them don't even believe it exists. And then you also have to have people willing to step up and participate and, you know, really do things that will make change. So I don't know. Do you think we can do that? Do you think we can pull together in sort of a sacrifice mode? Well, I think that the we don't have to respond in a sacrifice mode, right? I mean, that's that's the beauty of climate change solutions. We're at a point now where there are hundreds of technologies that are ready to scale that actually save people money. So now what we need is government regulations to force people to use them, whether it's cafe standards for cars or whether it's um, renewable portfolio standards for um, our electricity system or, you know, even like the multimodal uh, transport projects with the Tiger grants that the U.S. government's doing. I mean, the one thing I would say the U.S. government's not doing well, which I suspect Hillary Clinton will do a lot better job than Barack Obama has done, is actually get the government to work. I mean, the government has $80 billion of capital from the super ESPC money, and they just haven't prioritized its deployment, right? The government's mandated that GSA buy clean vehicles and GSA just isn't doing it. And so there's a lot of these areas where the government has the intention to do the right thing um, and hasn't really you know, mobilized themselves in a way to do it. I think that's what makes me most nervous about this vision. I have seen the value in creating regulations that shift behavior. 
I, I think CAFE standards are important. I think renewable energy standards have clearly been a good way to kickstart an industry without raising rates. There are clear arguments in favor of some of this government regulation. But when you think about the government involvement of the type that Bill McKibben is describing, you're, this is a whole different level and it's a whole uh, it's just it's like it's a scary level involvement in my opinion in fact this phrase kind of bothered me um he writes the feds acted aggressively they would cancel contracts as war needs changed tossing factories full of people abruptly out of work if firms refused to take direction fdr ordered many of them seized though companies made money there was little in the way of profiteering Bad memories from from World War One, Wilson says, led to robust profit controls, which were mostly accepted by America's industrial tycoons. Sounds, uh, you know, pretty dictatorial to me. And I don't know how one controls that, and you know how you. I just see I see that as as a threat to unleashing entrepreneurship and empowering consumers, which are two big drivers of some of today's progress. And we we can't ignore government's role. I'm not saying that we ignore government's role, but that vision is scary to me. I don't like that at all. Yeah, I mean, if you're serious, you're going to have to be punitive, right? You're going to have to, like, punish. in a whole different way. Like, we're not talking about clean power plan, flexible punitive. We're talking about, no, like... right. The, methane the, emissions the have to... Methane emission reductions. No. I mean, methane emissions have to stop. CO2 has to stop, and you'd have to punish companies that emit. But he's... Ba- yeah, but he's talking about a whole different level of punishment. I mean, that's that's what he's implying here. No, but look, I mean, like, I mean... Remember, I ran the carbon war room, right? Richard Branson used that terminology on purpose, you know, behind um, the war room that was set up in the UK. Um, You know, look, I think it's really about, um, in this case, I don't think Bill is saying we should do exactly the same thing we did in World War II. I think he's saying that we need to mobilize our industrial capacity in the same way that we did in World War II. Now, the way we mobilize that could be through government mandates, which then are met by the private sector in whichever way they meet them. But utilities are still required to show compliance around you know, renewable energy increasing as a percentage of their grid um, every year. Um, and I don't think that that would lead to the, to the abuses that you're um, complaining about, I think, Stephen. I think, you're, it would still, I think it would lead us to the same outcome. But but I, I, I do disagree because Dave Roberts had a really nice analysis of this, and he's written about this particular metaphor in the past. Very smart analysis. And he points out that McKibben is – he's referencing Naomi Klein, who thinks that the only way to deal with climate change is getting rid of capitalism. Um, he thinks that these broad proclamations of getting rid of f- fracking and only relying on wind, water, and solar – is really the only way to get there and is what we should be shooting for. So I think it's kind of prescriptive here. And I don't think he is just saying, let's rely on industrial capacity. I think there's there's something deeper here. And it's not as explicit. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I like the metaphor. I like exploring it. I think it's a beautifully written piece because he's a powerful writer. But I, I just, I think there's something deeper there that I completely disagree with. Well, but there there are little truths to all that stuff, which is why I find Dave Roberts's stuff to be, you know, slightly sort of off key sometimes, just because I think he's trying so hard to be mainstream about this. But like, I mean, there really is a problem with capitalism, right? I'm I'm quoted in Naomi Klein's book on purpose, because there is a problem with the way capitalism is structured um, today. I mean, and I'm the biggest capitalist around, right? So I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-capitalism. But, but I do think that 
the that part of what Bill's saying is that if we actually have the will, there's a way to achieve the level of carbon reduction that we're talking about. That like that there is a moment in time in history where the U.S. has shown the level of um, mobilization that is required here, and so it's not like there isn't an analogy to what we need. So part of it, I think, doesn't have to do with the government, although, it, I mean, as far as a government mandate, part of what I think about is the propaganda war side, which I would rather call it education, <laughs> but really getting people, the hundreds of millions of people in this country to be able to participate in a way other than buying LEDs for their home, but really to invest in clean energy, like having sort of the way we had U.S. war bonds have climate bonds, where you really invest and those funds go to to supporting the clean energy industry, um, you know, green banks or whatever you want to put that those funds to, but really have people to be able to participate and make a difference. I think that's going to be key to all of this. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, like I had lunch with Taryn Moore, uh, Taryn Norris um, today, and so Taryn, you know, used to work um, for the administration a lot on technology and finance issues um, in DOE, and you know, and he and I have been having a bit of a riff on innovation versus deployment, but. You know, part of what I've said to him is that that outside of our small bubble, most people don't believe that we have the technology today to actually stave off the worst impacts of climate change. And I think what Bill McKibben is saying in this piece, and I've been saying for years, is that we do have that technology. And in fact, every major, you know, um, government body and um, academic institution that studied it has shown that we have that, including the International Energy Agency and many others. And so, so... So I do think that that propaganda piece is important because I do think people have to know that we actually have most of the technologies necessary to meet, you know, uh, most of our climate goals. Yeah. So this piece is, piece is worth reading. Uh, it kind of rounds out McKibben's vision. He's been the leader of the keep it in the ground and the do the math campaign. And now he's kind of shifting to what would my vision of a clean energy strategy look like and here's what the most extreme version of a warlike mobilization should be and i i think it creates a cohesive intellectual narrative even if i disagree with big chunks of it it's a fun read and you know helps me kind of gauge how far i think we should take this to address the problem um i'll link to that on the podcast page and I'll move on now to the third topic, which is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. It's been 10 years to the month since a group of northeastern states agreed to create a regional carbon trading market called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI. When REGI was created, the politics of climate change were pretty different, actually. Sure, there were opponents, but the culture of denial hadn't worked its way deeply through the body politic at that point. And so a carbon trading market wasn't all that controversial. Heck, even Congress was considering cap and trade around that time. So a decade on, how did Reggie perform, particularly compared to the struggling cap and trade programs in Europe and California? We can say pretty resoundingly that it was a moderate success. Emissions are down, consumers saved money through efficiency programs funded by proceeds, and economic growth in the Northeast continued. But it wasn't all Reggie. There were, of course, other factors, and we'll try to dis dissect some of those. But let's break it down. Catherine, you've been talking to some people involved in the program. What are they saying about its 10-year legacy? Yeah, I had a, I took a great trip down memory lane with Dave Farnsworth, who 
is now at the Regulatory Assistance Project, but at the time of Reggie was at the Public Service Board of Vermont. He was the State Utility Commission staff attorney on the energy side. So for all these 10 states, they had an energy person and an air person from each state involved in this. And it was a staff level um, project that they put together. And he said, this is worth celebrating. He said, this is a model for responsible government. It is creating a policy that's based on what the policy that had already been in place and how to how to go about doing it, which was the acid rain program and SOX. So all those air people knew each other. They knew how to run this kind of program. And he said, now what we're going to do is we're going to put into place, you know, a program that looks at carbon reduction. So you can't do carbon reductions with scrubbers. You have to use something else. And they figured out, well, let's use programs. Let's model with programs with appliance standards and building codes and RPSs and efficiency standards and use those instead. And then cap and invest. And that's what they've done with, uh, I think, resounding success. They have 37% reduction in emissions and 24% growth in the economy. And yeah, you can try to figure out how to tease everything out. But it is a program that he said really does show how government can work well. Right. So I think it's clearly been successful. And to, to walk through some of the other benefits that have been cataloged by multiple groups analyzing the program, almost $3 billion in regional economic benefits, um, $395 million in bill savings because of money used for energy efficiency programs. Um, there have been a lot of new job years created, tens of thousands of job years because of those efficiency retrofits and um, renewable energy development as a result. And then, you know, $10 billion in health cost savings. I would say that uh, one would look at those numbers and definitely call that a resounding success. And I, I was more hesitant in my intro because there were clearly other factors that resulted in um, Reggie's success. And that was, be, you know, the, the economy tanked in 2008. And as the carbon market was kicking off, you saw a decrease in demand. Then you all of a sudden you saw low natural gas prices, and that was when we started seeing the glut of natural gas. And New England benefited very heavily from natural gas coming through Pennsylvania, for example. And at the same time, renewable energy expansion increased, and that is, of course, interlinked with the success of Reggie, but it's another factor that um, shows that it wasn't just the carbon trading. It was that these these other policies in place that helped lower emissions. So Duke University, I was looking for some studies, and the best one that I could find was from Duke University in 2011 that tried to quantify some of these other outside factors. And, and this study did show that Reggie was successful. You know, um, they found that... Uh, the economic recession actually only accounted for about 1% of the emissions decline. So really not a huge, huge um, influence. Natural gas markets were responsible for about one third of the region's emissions decline. And so natural gas, low prices there seemed to be a big player. Um, And then renewable energy, they couldn't really quantify, but they did point that out as an important external factor. Anyway, that's just kind of my high-level assessment. Clearly a success, but there's a lot going on there beyond the scope of the program itself. 
But the, one of the great things is that Reggie created this flexibility that states could get their reductions in a number of different ways, and they could reinvest from their auction. So um, while about 60% of that went to efficiency, because it turns out that's the cheapest way to scrub CO2, um, that this really, this flexibility really created a model that could work very well in the context of the clean power plan. So as we start, as states start looking at how are we going to meet those goals when the clean power plan is upheld, I think Reggie provides a great model and, and one that's been successful and 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 that states understand understood how to use within their own flexible means. So Andrew uh, McKinnon, who's uh, the new executive director of the Reggie Initiative, is a close friend of mine and. Um, um, he and I were talking about this, and you know the thing. His whole premise is that metrics matter, and and keeping things top of mind really matter. And so the fact that Reggie basically de facto added a price on carbon mattered. Um, and whether it was the pipeline capacity from Pennsylvania, or whether it was the planning um, work that was being done on transmission and distribution, you know, bottlenecks and energy efficiency programs, et cetera. The fact that you now had a price on carbon means that every single one of the players in this environment had a price on carbon in their spreadsheet. And even though it was four bucks a ton or five bucks a ton or seven bucks a ton, it was a number that was in their spreadsheet and then people managed it. And it led to, you know, I mean, according to the analysis group, which has done a lot of independent reports about Reggie, you know, 45% reduction since 2005 in power sector carbon pollution. Yeah, there's no doubt that it had an impact. And the other thing that I have yet to see really quantified is the spillover effect. So, you know, were there other power sector investments made outside of the participating states that may not have been made if the program were, were not in place, right? And and that hasn't been clearly quantified. Well, there's definitely a lot of outside of the, of the region uh, folks who used the Reggie auction numbers as their own internal uh, shadow pricing for carbon. Because at the time at which Reggie was passed, there was this, you know, fear on the part of utility companies that other folks would, would you know, do the same um, in their state. Yeah, and there are two um, pilot programs in China using auction allowances. So I think it could bleed over into other countries as well. But meanwhile, you know, Europe has really struggled. They've had a just really low demand for carbon credits. Um, California really struggled. And I th- from what I've seen, they have seen slower economic growth related in comparison to the Northeast after the recession. And so that has impacted demand for carbon credits. And the proceeds from the auctions have been so low. In California, I think in their latest auction, 90% of the credits were sitting unsold. Uh, so why is Reggie so much better? Why did it perform so much better than California's cap and trade system or Europe's cap and trade system? Well, it didn't. I mean, like, let's be let's be clear about this stuff. I find that these these things get conflated too quickly. The very first thing is that it's always been the case that when you restrict a cap-and-trade program to one specific sector, it always works better. And the reason for that is because it's apples to apples. When you try to like have carbon credits that actually trade across steel versus electricity versus trucking, 
you end up having all sorts of arbitrage opportunities, which you've seen in Europe. So, you know, folks like steel mills, which really were not regulated before the carbon price came in, made billions of dollars off of their credits because they had all sorts of low-hanging fruit that they were never forced to mine. And as soon as they were paid to mine it, they mined all of it and made tons of money dumping those credits onto the marketplace. And so when you do an economy-wide cap-and-trade like um, like Europe has done, then you need a group like the Fed, the Federal Reserve, to actually manage the credits, right? So as if you have a recession, you pull more of the credits off so that you maintain the price. And when you have a lot of economic growth, you loosen the credits to try to keep the price within a band. Like you have to, have to actually manage this actively, and they never did, right? So what happened was the prices cratered and people lost interest. In California, that's not true. So the the trading in California is irrelevant because the vast majority of AB32 programs are sectoral based. So they have a renewable portfolio standard for electricity. They have their own standards for transportation. They have different standards for agriculture. They have different standards for water. So all of those standards are taken care of. And the cap and trade in California is only for the emissions that don't fit within the sectoral programs. Yeah, I think another key thing about Reggie and why it's been able to it, it self corrects and self improves. So they were over allocated by forty percent in their first program review. Now they're going through the second program review, but they really do check their work. They look under the hood, as they say, while the car is still going, um, really soup to nuts to see if there's anything that needs tweaking or fixing. And I think that's really important to the success of the program. So what's next, Catherine? Are they gonna? You know, we we go to twenty twenty. Do you think that the states will sign on to an agreement after 2020, and will they beef up to, say, 5% reduction a year, something more aggressive than is already in place? Yeah, I think we have to see what happens with the Clean Power Plan and what happens with some of the gubernatorial so it races. It seems a heck of but, a lot more likely yeah. because of the Clean Power Plan. Yeah, right? I would think I would think so. I mean, I um, I mean, Dave says that there are probably going to be some few issue a few issues that need fixing just based on this program review, but. Yeah, it seems like something that would be a really easy for that thing for them to continue doing and meet all their goals. And I don't think this has to do with the Clean Power Plan, as I've said many times. I mean, this has to do with the fact that the state of New York has very bold carbon reduction goals, you know, that's been in their electricity sector that's been codified by an RPS. The same thing's true with Massachusetts and all these other places. If you just take all of those goals and put them into Reggie regulation, you would see those 5% reductions. Oh, yeah. They'll coast to their CPP requirements. That's that's not the issue. It's just that that sends a strong signal. Wow. Three good topics there. Let's wrap up the show. And we've got something to tell you that you may not know. Jigger Shah, you're up first this week. So um, there was a really interesting you know, tweet that was sent out um, by Dustin Mulvaney where he sort of uh, he referred to data from the state of California on um, what the uh, – what the income level was of people that were using uh, state of California CSI rebates. Um, and what's amazing is that, so from 2007 through 2011, more people that had less than $50,000 of income installed solar than people that had over $100,000 of income. Um, and that and that has actually continued since then when talking to Solar City and Sunrun and others. And so there's definitely a lot more people between 50K and 100K that have actually installed solar. But the less than 50K income earners actually installed more than the over 100K income earners, which is interesting for all the people who say that only rich people install solar. Wow. That is, that's impressive. 
Okay, Catherine, what is your story this week? Yeah, I have two quick things. One is that uh, while I was sitting by the lake reading every single page of a newspaper one day, I saw a great story in the New York Times about ExxonMobil and the suit that the Attorney General of New York and others are are um, have filed against ExxonMobil. And, it's, and we've talked about this before, and it's not about their lying um, in the past or, you know, having done all this research on climate change and then funding anti-climate change propaganda, but instead it's a fraud suit. So they're accusing them of lying to their investors and stockholders about the risk that their extraction and their industry actually poses. So I think it's very interesting because it's based on what they currently have. It's based on what they can and can't burn and whether or not they're lying to their investors. And uh, I think that was a really interesting approach. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was very local to upstate New York, which is, um, but also has to do with propaganda and education, I should say. The Wild Center is the Natural History Museum at Tupper Lake, New York. It's the first LEED certified museum in New York State, very hands-on, accessible for all ages. They have a big solar PV array that uh, heats the entire complex. And uh, just an amazing place to visit. Uh, we go, we try to go every year. Um, and it, it's a great way for people of all kinds to learn about their environment and climate. On the Exxon piece, the um, show on the media re-released an interview that co-host Bob Garfield did with an Exxon spokesman. Yes, when... I listened to that again this yes. morning. <laughs> And he just eviscerates this guy. And it's such a good interview. I love Bob Garfield. And this one in particular was uh, of interest to me. So if you don't subscribe to that show via your podcast app, do it. And you won't regret it. Or at least just listen to that one interview. It's the latest show that they posted. Speaking of shows, hey, we've got two live shows coming up, and that is my story this week. Come join us uh, at Solar Power International in mid-September. Let's see, the conference is from the 12th through the 15th in Las Vegas, and we're going to be doing a live show on the morning of Wednesday, September 15th, during the general session. We're going to kick that off with a rapid-fire half-an-hour show. I know that there are going to be a ton of you there. We have a lot of solar industry listeners listening to this show, so come say hello and fill up the room, and uh, we would love to see you there. Second is... The South by Southwest Conference, the uh, well, South by Southwest Eco, on the week of Wednesday, October 12th. I think that conference is going from the 10th through the 13th, and we are there on the 12th, midday. That's going to be a fun one. We're also just surrounded by great content, a lot of thought leaders from across the sustainability uh, sector from across energy and clean tech, environmentalists, pretty diverse conference. And um, I hope that people can come check us out. We'll have a lot of fun with those live shows. And I think that is all for our show this week. I'm glad to have Catherine and Jigger back in my life again. Catherine, good to chat with you. You too. It's great to be back. Jigger, same. Good to hear your voice again. Yeah, it's always it's always great to be on the podcast with you. One quick shout out is that we're getting a ton of feedback from people by email, and that's so welcome. So if you've got comments on the show, please send them in because I love reading them, and I think everyone else does here too. Absolutely, a step ahead of me, we got a, an email address that you can email podcasts at greentechmedia dot com, and that will get forwarded around to all the co hosts. 
We love getting feedback from people, and we we have had some folks write in and ask us to diversify into some other areas, and we are very receptive to that. So if you have um, topics that you want to hear us discuss, we are always open to those. Also, leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. It's really good for us to find new listeners. So with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.